Praise the Lord. As we've been walking through the book of Acts, and I would invite you this morning to pick your Bible up and turn to the, uh, not gospel, but the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 9. We'll be jumping right over into chapter 10, but what an exciting recount, a recounting of the history of the church that we have given to us by the gospel writer Luke. And uh, at this point, as I give a quick recap of where we are, uh, it's been a couple of Sundays since I preached in the book of Acts. Um, it, you know, you recall that uh, now that the church's chief persecutor, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, has been wonderfully and miraculously converted uh, to Christianity. He has had an encounter with the living, resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is now a follower and a proclaimer. He's the church's, one of the church's strongest advocates and the church's strongest apologist. And so now, with, with Paul being on the side of the church, if you will, the persecution level begins to drop tremendously. The church is beginning to feel a little bit of ease at this point. And so uh, this gives the, the apostles in Jerusalem, particularly Peter, an opportunity to, to move about the, the, the Roman Empire, to begin to, to expound upon the scriptures and teach the gospel and uh, without the threat of persecution. Now, of course, Paul converted to Christianity... Uh, or Saul of Tarsus converting to Christianity didn't go unnoticed by the Jews. And certainly they are very disturbed by the fact that the one that they had sent to arrest Christians and to harass and persecute Christians is now proclaiming the gospel and, and actually going against the, the system of Judaism of that day. Then he becomes a target of persecution himself. In fact, he's a wanted man, if you will. And so the, their death threats against uh, the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, in fact, in chapter 9, verse 30, you may recall where it tells us that uh, Paul was being threatened. Says when the, and, and then when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea. And just kind of let that tuck, back, tuck that back in the back of your mind. Just, just that idea right there. That fact right there. They, they escorted him to Caesarea. And then from there, they sent him out to Tarsus, which was his hometown. And so for a while in the scriptures, we won't see or hear of and from Paul, Saul, during this time. It's interesting that while Saul is, is, is having a, a time of, 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 of sabbatical, of reflection, I'm sure it was a time of training and development in the faith. But during that time, then God begins to shift the spotlight back to the Apostle Peter, who is recognized as the leader of that early church out of Jerusalem, and as we saw Peter is now moving about in the region of, um, of Galilee. He's on the uh, Mediterranean coastal shore or, uh, of uh, Israel, there along the coast of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And so he's, he's there preaching and proclaiming the gospel. We saw in chapter 9 last, uh, last time, in, in beginning in verse 32, how, how Peter encountered a, a man who had been lame, uh, who had been paralyzed for some eight years and, uh, by the name of Aeneas. And, and Peter worked, worked a great miracle that, that brought healing to this man. He was able to walk again. And then in a nearby uh, town, uh, he also had the opportunity of raising a woman, a Christian lady, a disciple of Christ by the name of Tabitha, who, who had died as a result of illness, and, and he raised her back to uh, life. And so these two miracles is a, is a real jump start to the church and a boost to the proclamation of the gospel. And so God is working powerfully through 
the Apostle Peter at this time. I thought it was interesting that, you know, the Scripture is very detailed and everything that we have given to us by Luke in the book of Acts is there for our uh, remembrance and also for our recognition of what God is doing. God is a God of design. And, and things that happened to the early church, and I would even say today, the things that are happening to the contemporary church are happening according to a plan that God set into motion when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And just remember that. You and I are part of an eternal plan that God set into motion, beginning all the way back in the book of Acts at that day of Pentecost. And so everything that has transpired is going on because God wills it to happen to the church. And so as we look here in chapter 9, I thought it was interesting that Peter, after he'd worked these miracles, and, and the people are, many people come to believe as a result of these great miracles of healing and raising of the dead. It says in verse 43, so it was, he stayed many days in Joppa, which is a coastal sea, uh, town there along the uh, shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, he is staying there in Joppa, and it's interesting, ironic if you, if you will, because the, the region of Joppa is, if you look at the contemporary map, uh, map of Israel, it is where the, the city of Tel Aviv is today. And if you've been following the news, and as Pastor Tim alluded to in his prayer, the rockets that have been fired by Hamas uh, into uh, Israeli territory have been landing in, in proximity of, this, of the city of Tel Aviv. And because of that, because of the fact that the Israeli airport is located there, they closed down the airport to American Airlines for a while, but I, I believe they've resumed flights. So, so things are still happening in the same region that things were happening then. Don't take your eyes off of the Middle East, folks, because it's there in the Scripture all the way through the book of Revelation. And what we see happening in the book of Acts is, is a clear indication that God is a God of history and He is a God of purpose and plan. But so Peter is there. Simon Peter is there. He stays many days in Joppa, this town, with, with Simon, a tanner. And I think I shared with you last time that a tanner is a man of profession that takes animal hides and through the process of, of using strong chemicals and, and the salt water of the ocean, uh, tanning those, those uh, hides into leather that would be sold in the market. And, and, you know, there are certain businesses that have a telltale uh, aroma to them. You know, you can just uh, about tell where you are in the state or in the city by just smelling uh, I know some of you probably have driven down Griffith Drive over there where the Winston-Salem Sewage Treatment Center is. They had a big smiley face on the water tank out there, a uh, gigantic smiley face. And when our children were small, Tim and Laura, uh, Laurie uh, would see that and she thought they manufactured smiley faces there. So when we would drive past, she was always saying, Dad, stop, oh, we'll get some smiley faces. And I said, no, we're going to speed up and roll the windows up, you know, because you could tell by the smell. But on the other side of the coin, you know, I can remember... Uh, as a social worker driving up and down 5240 in those days, uh, the uh, Morita Bread Company, I think, had a, a, a factory downtown. And, and on certain days, just the way the, the, the uh, wind was going and blowing across Highway 52, I could almost just close my eyes and tell. Well, I wouldn't close my eyes driving down 52, and I wouldn't recommend it to you. But, but I knew when I got to that spot, the most... Oh, just mouth-watering aroma of fresh baked bread. I would just get hungry. I don't care what time of day it was, you know. 
Uh, and of course, I can remember as a student over at Wake Forest, you know, uh, in proximity to Reynolds Tobacco, there were certain days where the humidity would be just right, the wind shift, and we'd be walking around the campus and you'd almost get sick of the smell of, of tobacco being produced and, and, and manufactured over there in the uh, Reynolds plant. But, but if you were anywhere in the neighborhood of Joppa and, um, and somebody asked you if you were a resident there, um, how, how will I get to the tanner shop? You would probably tell them, just follow your nose. Uh, because the acids and, and the, the, the skins, and, it, the tanner shops just had a reputation of being a bad, stinky place to work. Some of you may have worked in places, not a tanning shop, but a place that had bad smells to them. But, but it's interesting, here's the leader of the church. One of Jesus' closest disciples, a man that, that was so powerfully used of God to, that he would raise a, a paralytic man and, and raise a, a dead wo a woman to, to life, and, and yet God has him staying with the tanner. You know, uh, you may not understand the reason for that. I mean, of all the places, it couldn't have smelled that well, and you know, tanners were not considered to be religiously, ceremonially clean. So Jews would avoid tanners like anything because they dealt with dead skins and that made them ceremonially, religiously unclean. And yet here is Simon Peter spending many days with this tanner. There's a purpose, folks. There's a reason. As we move further, you'll see that God has him strategically where he wants him to be. But I'm going to shift our focus from Joppa, 30 miles to the north. And if you have a map in the back of your Bible and you want to look at that, you can see where Caesarea, another coastal city, town, is located uh, north of Joppa. And that's where the action is taking place today in chapter 10. Caesarea, as you see, uh, as you'll find out, is a significant city. So uh, our, our focus is going to be on a man that, that's not a Christian. He's a religious man. Uh, he, he is a man of significance, and we'll see that. His name is Cornelius. And I want you to see as we open up chapter 10 and, and look at these verses here, I want you to see that Cornelius is, uh, I want you to see his heartfelt quest. He, he, he was a man on a mission, if you will. And, and, and I'll tell you this, people who come to Christ, whether they realize it or not, they are men, women, young people, or even boys and girls on a mission. They may not realize that, but they are headed towards an intersection with the living God of the universe. I'm glad. I'm glad that I was a, a young lad on a mission, realizing it at the time of my uh, salvation. Later, as I professed faith in Christ as a disciple. And here we find uh, a man by the name of Cornelius. And I want you to look with me in verse 1 of chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and I'm going to stop there. He said, oh no, you got me hanging on the edge. Uh, first of all, I want you to see this person that we call Cornelius, and I want to challenge you to see the parallel that goes on between this uh, pagan uh, Gentile, if you will, who is now a God-fearer, but, but still, he's, he's a Gentile. And I want you to think of the parallel between Cornelius and, and yet another prominent Gentile that we, we encountered in chapter 8, who happened to be an Ethiopian. 
He, he was a, a, a man of prominence as he was the treasurer for Queen Candace in the, in the nation of Ethiopia. And he had an encounter. He was a man on a mission. You're going to see some similarities between these two individuals. One head in north, one head in south. But you see, that, that was God's uh, timetable and that was God's plan. So what do we see about this man, Cornelius? He was a very prominent man. He had a reputation in the secular world. And I want you to, to see that. Cornelius had everything going for him. Uh, as far as the, 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 the society around him. First of, all, first, first of all, his place of service. Caesarea was not a small town. It was the provincial capital of the region of Judea. And, and so that was where the governor resided. At one time, Caesarea, known by another name, was an insignificant town, but then Herod the Great came along and wanted to make it significant. And as a tribute to Caesar, he built this massive city, a port city, that began to take on great prominence in the Roman Empire. So here's this Roman centurion serving in a capital city, which puts him on the map, which says, hey, he's serving in a place of great importance. But also, I want you to note his position of military service. Not just the place where he was serving, but his position. He was a centurion. And, and the root of that word, the etymology of the word, would suggest centurion meaning a hundred. He, he was a, a, a commander of a hundred soldiers. And in the Roman army, that's important. In fact, one, one scholar, as I was reading in commentaries about this passage, talking about centurions, said that centurions were the backbone of the, or of the Roman army. These were the very men that, that Caesar entrusted to make it work. They were at the level where they could relate to their men, but they were men of great leadership abilities, and they, they were absolutely dependable. So these were men that were entrusted with great responsibility to make the massive Roman military work. So naturally, being a leader in the military at that time, he was probably well off. He was probably well known. He was highly respected among his peers. And yet deep in his heart, Cornelius understood and recognized there was something missing. There was something that was not there. The scripture tells us that Cornelius was a devout man, one who feared God. Which God? Romans had many gods. They were polytheistic. Which God? It's interesting that, that according to the, the writings of Luke here in, in, in Acts, Cornelius had turned his back on the pagan religion of Romanism at that time. He wasn't even following any of the pagan Roman gods, but was instead of a fearer of the God of the Jews, which made him a God-fearer. But nonetheless, he was a religious man. And might I, might I add that, you know, as we look at his reputation in the religious community, that as a religious man, he was practicing a religion. And I, I want to make a statement here. This will help us to understand as we compare Christianity against world religion. The, the, the thing that, that defines world religion is it's man's attempt. Man's attempt through works to find God. And there are all kinds of religions out there even today that offer all kinds of formulas, rituals, works-based uh, uh, trends that are designed to help a man find God. Fact is, folks, the reality of that is no one no man has ever, ever, ever found God on his own. And we'll get to the difference when it comes to Christianity. But this is a man who is religious. Cornelius is trying the best of his ability, even through 
Judaism. He knows that the Jews are on to something. He senses that their God is different than the gods of the Roman Empire. And so he is a God-fearer, not technically a Jewish proselyte. There's no mention of the fact that he's been circumcised, so he's not officially a, a, a Jew. But nonetheless, he, he is a fearer of the God of the Jews. He's a devout man. In other words, he's devoted to the practice. In other words, he's seeking God. That's important. I, I was looking back in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, and God is writing, uh, speaking to the Israelites who were in captivity at Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah, and giving them words of hope, even as they were in captivity, far away, away from home. He was giving them words of hope, and in that promise that he was giving to them through Jeremiah the prophet, he says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God offers that promise to everyone who are genuinely seeking after Him through faith. And I believe that that was what deep down in Cornelius' heart, he was looking, seeking for an encounter with the true God. He was a God-fearer, but also he was a benevolent friend of the Jews. And that's important. You may recall all the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where God was given a promise to Abraham, a man who was childless, getting on up in age, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And he says, and I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And here we have a, a Gentile uh, political military leader who the Bible says, according to Luke, he is, he is a very generous alms giver to the Jewish people. God is going to bless him because of the promise that God made to Abraham many centuries before. It's, you know, it's interesting. Cornelius was a religious man. He, in fact, if you were holding him up against the teachings of Judaism and the requirements of Judaism, he's met two of the three requirements of Judaism. He, he's he's uh, uh, dedicated to prayer. We'll see that. And he gives alms. And so uh, the only thing that was left was fasting. He would have been a pretty good Jew. I, I, I would like to submit that, that, that probably in, in the eyes of the local synagogue, let's just take off our pious hats and, and, and just think in a very practical way. If you were the leader of, of the local synagogue and here was a, a man of prominence in the community who had a great reputation, a man who was, who was well respected in the overall general community, who was a leader in the military, a man that was practicing for the most part Judaism, for the most part, had a sincere desire to be devoted to the God of Abraham, and, and he was a man that was given generously to the synagogue. Why, folks, I believe if you were to ask the leader of the local synagogue, is this Cornelius a member of your church? I mean, synagogue. He probably, yeah, 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 he's one of us. He's one of us. Why do I make a point of that? Because I believe that this goes on all across America today. I believe there are a lot of good people, and I mean people of good reputations in the community, people who seem to be religious. I mean, you know, they, they do talk about praying, and they, they give money to the church. Well, they'll show up for worship services occasionally. And tragically, they've been made to think that they're okay with God. And the church will go ahead and welcome them then, baptize them and put them on the church roll. 
Because after all, they are good people. They have a good reputation. They're generous givers to the church. Well, that's the kind of person we want. How many pastors are guilty of going through the community and saying, now we want to get some of the rich people. We want to find those that have a good name out there. That we want to make our church look good. We want to build up the coffers of the church. So let's go out there and find some of these people. All they got to be is a little bit religious. Oh, listen, Cornelius was a good man. Make no mistake about it. He was headed in the right direction, folks. But the fact is, the fact is, he was not there yet. He was not there yet. Just like the Ethiopian unit that was traveling along the road before Philip encountered him, he was a good man. He was a religious man. He was reading the book of Isaiah. He was seeking after God. Now some people would have said, that's a good, that's a good man. He's a good Jew. We, we, we welcome him right on in. But, but you see, he wasn't there yet. He wasn't a Christian yet. What did it take? It took Philip opening up the Word of God to that Ethiopian so I want you to understand, as good as, as, as Cornelius is, and, and, and as religious as he may seem, and as generous as he was, he wasn't there yet. And God knew that. And we'll talk about the rest of the story. I say that because I am so thankful to God that the Lord has given the leadership of this church the wisdom to, make, to, to, to insert one of our core values to be meaningful membership. Folks, membership in a church should matter. There's a, there's a significant eternal difference between being a member of a local civic club or, or some social organization and being a member of the body of Christ. And yet over the years, by the influence of a, of a very secular culture, many churches have allowed the concept of membership to be so watered down that just about anybody can end up on the church roster and be considered a church member. And yet the truth be known, the truth be known, when it comes to their relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, they are not there yet. They're seeking. They may have the right signs. But they're not there yet. So we see Cornelius' heart. His heartfelt quest to discover God, to encounter God. He's doing the all, listen, for all he knows he's doing. So let's give him credit. He's praying. He's giving alms. He's supporting God's people. He's doing everything that he knows to do. And this is where God steps in. This is where God steps in. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you something. All of us were at this point in our lives at some point. There was a time that we were going through the motions. We were seeking. We were doing everything that we needed to do. But we needed God to do something. And I got good news for you. God, the scripture tells us from the very beginning to the very end. God Almighty always takes the initiative. No person has ever been converted to Christianity. Born again and given new life in Jesus Christ. Except God took the initiative to reach out to them. Me and you. Praise God. That's what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. 
And then I appointed you that you would go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit will remain that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give to you. Listen, if you're saved today, you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. You're heaven bound and you're eternally adopted into the family of God. We ought to be shouting on Sunday morning. We ought to be praising God on Sunday morning. Hallelujah. Look what has happened to me. Not because I'm so good. Not because I'm so smart. Not because I know everything. It's because God took the initiative to reach me when I needed to be reached. And God is about to reach Cornelius. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Bible says, Luke tells us, verse 3, about the ninth hour, which, by the way, is one of the most sacred hours of prayer for Judaism. In the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision. You know, that's not anything strange. God oftentimes, according to the Scriptures, would speak to people in visions. That's just how God chose to communicate before the Scripture was totally intact and canonized. And so therefore, you know, they relied on God-ordained visions. And he saw clearly a vision of an angel, an angel of God, coming in and saying to him, Cornelius... And when he observed him, he was afraid. Isn't that amazing? He was a centurion in the Roman army. The most powerful nation in the world. One of the most powerful military figures. A centurion walks into an establishment. I promise you, you get out of the way. If you're sitting at a a, a, a table and the centurion walks up to you and probably the soldiers are parked outside and he says, I need that seat. You don't argue with him. He had the power to command his soldiers, I want you to go and do this. And buddy, you better believe they went and they did that. And yet the Bible says, all of a sudden, three o'clock in the afternoon, here was this great, powerful man who was shaking in his boots. Why? Because he was encountering the living God through God's angel. I've never really truly encountered a real angel, except for Marjorie and Floyd, and they're really good angels, but I've never been afraid. But I'm going to tell you something. If one of those divine beings were to show up in my study or my bedroom or me driving down the car uh, road in my car, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'd be afeared, as they say back in Roxborough. And Cornelius was... But, but I want you to see, he was simply enthralled by the, 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 the majesty, the power. He knew this was a divine occurrence going on in his life. And he says, what is it, Lord? He wasn't worshiping this angel. He knew who this angel represented. By the way, angel, the etymology of the word is messenger. Angels are messengers from God. This angel came with a message, message sent directly from God. You said, man, I'd like it if God sent me some messages. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if I was just getting messages from God? Anybody ever got a text, you know? Go witness today. God. <laughs> if, you, if you do, I would be highly suspect of it, Okay. But brothers and sisters, we don't need angels to show up in our private places of devotion. Every day that you open up one of the copies of the Word of God, God's got messages all through here for you and me. 
And he's got messages for every one of his children. He's got things he wants to see. And Brother Roy, that's why I appreciate and love the ministry of the Gideons because you're taking God's message to people all over the world. They can hear from God. They can hear Him speak by the power of His living Word through the Holy Spirit directly to their hearts. And folks, He is. Just as Brother Roy shared in the testimony. He is. So you see, the Lord took the initiative. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, In this God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our acts cleaned up. Aren't you glad? In, in the wretchedness and the lostness of our sinfulness, God took the initiative to come to you with, with the love that, that you could never comprehend. The love that you could never manufacture. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, In this the love of God is demonstrated in that He has sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, into this world that we might live through Him. God takes the initiative. He took the initiative to come to Cornelius through an angel. And you see, the Lord is responding to, to Cornelius' heart. Do you remember what I shared with you in Jeremiah chapter 29? But if you back up into Isaiah, another prophet of God, I want you to hear what God says to those who are seeking after Him. In Isaiah chapter 55, chapter 55, verse 6. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God says, if you are truly seeking me with your heart, God says, you can guarantee I will take the initiative. How do you know that? Because God is the one who gives you the desire. Where did Cornelius get this wild notion that somehow he would abandon paganism and turn to Judaism and, and start seeking after this God that is described in the Holy Scriptures? How, where did that come from? He wasn't taught that in military academy, I promise you. He was, listen, God took the initiative to plant that desire in his heart. And then when he responded by faith, then God took the next step. Cornelius is close, folks. He's close. He's not quite there yet, but he's close. I like it because, you know, in, in, in that same chapter in Jeremiah that I read, verse 13 in chapter 29, verse 11, God says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future. God says, And then you will come and call on me, and you will pray to me, and I will listen to you. God says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. God's got thoughts towards His people. He had thoughts towards Cornelius before Cornelius had thoughts about Cornelius. And folks, God's got a plan for you. You see, Cornelius' heart was bent towards and praying to the true and living God. He didn't know Him like we know Him. But that, he was doing all he could. He, he was doing the best. He was praying to the best that he knew to pray to. And he was trusting. He had a heart that was sincerely, that sincerely sought to please the God of the Jews through his acts of piety given. And, and, and how do we know that? How do we know that God saw this? How do we know that God was pleased with 
with Cornelius' prayers. How do we know that God even knew that Cornelius was given generously to the people of God, given of alms? How do, how do we know that? Because the angel said so. Look in verse 4. So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Cornelius, what you have been doing, God's been watching. You may have not felt anything. You may have not got any confirmation. But don't you think that God didn't see it, mister? And every alms that you gave, every prayer that you prayed, it came up. Listen, it's interesting. Uh, a memorial. It takes us back into the Old Testament when the psalmist is talking about how the praise from the lips of his people come up to heaven like a sweet aroma as a memorial to God. We don't have to offer burnt sacrifices anymore, but you know what? We think of the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial. We're not just going through a religious ritual here, ladies and gentlemen. When you come to the Lord's table and you very consciously and humbly hold in your hand that piece of bread, listen, it ought to be just running through your mind the scenes of Jesus being beaten to a pulp as He was being prepared to be hung on a cross and nailed. Listen, you ought to see His broken body and it ought to do something in your heart. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do it as a memorial. Do it as a memorial, as a sacrifice, as you're doing it, as you take of the cup, remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. His precious, sinless, atoning blood. And when we partake of the cup, listen, we're offering a memorial. We're saying, oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I owe you everything. You gave your everything for my salvation. Lord, I am unworthy and there's nothing about me except you. That really counts. And I come today to remember you, Lord. I come today to remember you. I come today to make a memorial before you to stake a claim that yes, Jesus Christ was indeed the precious Lamb of God. Oh, don't waste a precious moment like the Lord's Supper. And all of Cornelius' efforts went up to God as a memorial. And now God's got a word for him. You see, the Lord reveals to him the way. I don't know if y'all ever played play pinning the tail on the donkey. I guarantee you probably everybody in here has. It's kind of humiliating, isn't it? Really. Except, I mean, if you're the one being blindfolded. You know, they spin you around. And they, they say, you know, now go. And your friends, you know, that your friends are saying, go, go to the right when the donkey is to the left. No one you're going to walk dead into a chair. You know, keep going, keep going, boom, you walk into a wall, it's not the way to, yeah, oh, it's, it's terrible to be blind and to be seeking after something and you just feel so helpless. Spiritually, Cornelius was seeking after something he yearned for deep in his spirit. If you ask him to explain it, he probably couldn't explain it other than he was seeking after the true God. I can imagine the exhilaration that must have come over this Roman centurion's heart when that angel says, now listen carefully. I'm paraphrasing. But he was very succinct and he was very specific in his instructions. Look at verse 5. Now, send men to Joppa. Now, I just told you Joppa's 30 miles to the south. Cornelius knew exactly where Joppa was. 
Go to Joppa and send for Simon. Whoa, if you end up at that particular tanner's house, you got two Simons. Which one? <laughs> Simon, whose surname is Peter. Make sure you get Peter. Don't come back here with that tanner. He is lodging with Simon. Which Simon in Joppa? Maybe there's more. Probably was. The tanner. Oh, oh. How am I going to find the tanner? Y'all remember? <laughs> you won't have any trouble. Whose house is by the sea. Folks, God doesn't deal in generalities. When somebody is genuinely seeking after the Lord by faith and God has chosen that person and He's ready for that person to discover Him, listen, God speaks very specifically. And in every copy of the Scriptures that, that our brothers and sisters distribute in all the regions of this country and all the nations of the world, 197, listen, ev within the, the contents of every one of those, whether they be in Swahili, German, Chinese, or, or English, God speaks very, very specifically. He doesn't say, now listen, if you just go through some rituals and keep burning incense and come do a pilgrimage, sooner or later, somewhere you'll find the way. No, he says his name. He says his name. His name is Jesus. He's not just Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the very one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. How? But by me. Folks, it doesn't get any plainer than that. And aren't you glad? When you and I have the opportunity to share with the person who is seeking we won't have to fumble around. We won't have to speak in generalities. We can just hand them a copy of the Word of God and sit there next to them in their living room on their sofa and open it up and read to them. You can share with them directly, precisely, clearly the way. God's directions were clear. Joppa, Simon, Simon Peter, and Simon the Tanner's house, that smells like a skunk, that's not in there, but down by the sea. And brother, if you're a centurion, you got all these soldiers, you can't find that, you don't need to be mine. <laughs> God doesn't take any chances. Not with something as precious as salvation, folks. And nor should we. God spoke specifically Cornelius responded immediately. He didn't have to think about it. There was no interrogation. He didn't say, well, wait, wait a minute, angel. Hold it, angel. <laughs> no, no, there's no interrogation. There's no hesitation. Now, like a lot of people, when you try to share Christ with them, you know, they want to ask all these questions. Listen, when the time is right and when God has chosen them, listen, they'll learn. And Cornelius immediately Responded. You say, well, what's the big deal? One Roman soldier getting saved. <laughs> you just wait to the next message. 
We're about to embark upon one of the watershed moments in the history of the church. God is simply setting the stage, ladies and gentlemen. Next time, as Brother Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. <laughs>